0: Amen. You may be seated if you haven't already done so. Thank you, Josh and uh, worship team. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be, all to leave and follow thee. That everything in this world that we could hold dear, we would say, I'm fine to part with it if that means I can have Jesus. Um, That's what we're going to be learning and studying uh, this morning in Matthew. This is my favorite parable. As we've been going through parables, I I love all the parables. They're amazing. Last week was really fun to be able to dialogue about a parable that we don't often look at. A very strange parable where God is praising this unjust steward. What is he saying? It was a very interesting um, time going through that parable. Very, very helpful. But we move now to Matthew 13. Uh, If you guys have your Bibles, uh, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, just three short verses. And if I were to make connections here with where we've gone, where we've been, to, to where we're going... It would be this. We started in Matthew 13 at the beginning with the parable of the soils. Uh, We looked at the the preparedness of your heart uh, being what would bring fruit. They all receive the word the same way, but the preparedness of the soil in their heart is what's dependent upon how much fruit they're going to bear. Then we looked at Luke 18 and the reality of those who see themselves as good in and of themselves, not needing a savior, but fine on their own by doing good works, by earning salvation, by going through motions. Um, They're not going to have soil that's ready for the word. They're not going to receive the word and bear fruit. Only those who see themselves as utterly destitute, as utterly wicked, with the impossibility of getting to God on their own, will gladly receive the news that there is a savior come to save your soul. That was in Luke 18 with the parable of the the tax collector and, and the Pharisee. Then those who realize the salvation that they have been given as a free gift of God to save their souls and usher them into an eternity with him forever in paradise. They're going to want to get that message out. That's what we looked at in Luke 16 last week. They're going to want to do whatever they need to do to get that message out. And if that's using the resources God has given to them, they're going to say those treasures that God has given are not treasures to me, to my soul. Jesus is my greatest treasure, and I'll use whatever he's given me as a good steward to get the gospel out. That leads us to this parable. What is your treasure? What is your treasure? Is it Jesus? Or is it the things that this world has to offer? Matthew 13. Verses 44 through 46. Let's read them together. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Three verses... Two simple parables, but we need God's help if we're going to see them clearly. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our family, in our church family here. That at the end of our time together, we would see the implications of saying Jesus alone is my treasure. That we would value him supremely over anything this world has to offer. And this world has much to offer. God, captivate our hearts. Enthrall our hearts. Give us greater affections for Jesus. As we see what he has done to purchase us. God, may we see the treasure that He is. And God, I pray for any in this room that do not know Jesus Christ for who He is, the value, the supreme treasure to be cherished above all things. God, I pray today would be the day that their toe would stumble upon the treasure and they would sell everything they have to buy the field. To get you. That their eyes would glance over the pearl of great price and they would leave everything behind to have you. Make us a church made up of individuals who would gladly say, To live as Christ and to die as gain. I want Jesus. So, God, may your Holy Spirit illuminate our understanding. We will not see the treasure of Jesus Christ. We will not see the value of Jesus with earthly, fleshly eyes. We need the Spirit to illuminate our understanding to see Him. So show us Christ. Reveal Your glory. And may we treasure and cherish Him alone this day and forevermore. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. When Jesus is preaching in parables, as we've seen, he is um, befuddling the crowds. He's not teaching to further explain truths. He's concealing these truths. But in concealing, he's revealing truths about the kingdom of God that are turning upside down people's thinking about what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is a very topsy-turvy thing. When Jesus speaks, he speaks in parables, and these parables are spoken in such a way to say, there's truth about the kingdom that you once thought was this way, and I'm telling you it's that way. Left is right, right is left, up is down. He's turning the truth of the gospel right side up in the minds and the hearts of his hearers. In the parables, he is consistently subverting values and expectations, and yet simultaneously he's fulfilling The essence of the desire at the root of those values and expectations. Values are being changed. When Jesus speaks, he's speaking in such a way where he's changing the value. The economy of grace is different than the economy of this world. Such that Jesus can say, if the son has set you free, you're free indeed. Even if you're a prisoner in chains. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas in prison They're free men, even though they're shackled. They're singing as free men, even though they're in chains. This is the upside down nature of the value of the kingdom. Death now is gain. What is the world's greatest enemy is the believer's greatest good. Get me to Jesus. Make my day. I want to be with him. Death is now gain. It's all upside down. Jesus changes everything. But one of the biggest areas, one of the most important areas, I believe it's the most important area where Jesus changes our value systems and our thinking is that of treasure, the concept of treasure, what we value, what is of supreme worth in your life? Why do you live your life? What are you living for? All of Jesus's teachings would ultimately come to a head and to a point that would say, what is your greatest treasure in this life? What do you live for? What do you value most? And Jesus is going to teach that in these two short, simple parables. These two parables uh, are found in a series of seven parables in Matthew 13. This is all happening on the same long day Jesus started with the parable of the soils. There are seven different parables. They all kind of come in couplets. The first two soils are the, uh, or the, the first two parables are the parable of the soils and the tares and the wheat. Uh, Dealing with the nature of the kingdom and the fact that uh, your heart needs to be ready to receive and God needs to do that work in your heart and you can't earn or buy or purchase or do anything to get to heaven on your own. The next two, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, deal with the power of the kingdom. It starts small, but it's going to blow up. It's going to get enormous. At this point, we're talking only 12 disciples, one of them who's not even saved, so 11 disciples and Jesus. And Jesus says, don't worry, it's going to go, the, the gospel is going to go to the entire earth, to the whole world. The next two are the two that we're looking at today. The the, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the costly pearl. And then the last parable kind of ends everything, the parable of the uh, the dragnet that many people will say that they're saved. And they might even look good on the outside, but at the end of human history, that, that dragnet's going to Pick up everybody, every human that 's ever lived, and separate the good and the bad, and then we will finally know who truly trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, or who thought they had good works off you. Remember Matthew seven, look, I did all of these things in your name, and Jesus say, "I never knew you you don 't get to me by doing anything. you get to me by me doing the work to get to you so that 's the context. These two parables find themselves as a couplet dealing with the nature of the kingdom in appropriating it and in seeing its worth and its value. So let's, for our time this morning, let's look at point number one, we'll look at the parable of the hidden treasure. And point number two, we'll look at the parable of the costly pearl. And point number three, we'll explain what they mean. We'll go through it an explanation and application all together. First, verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure... Hidden in the field. Kingdom of heaven. What is it? Um, there's a, a whole sermon on that alone, what the kingdom of heaven is. Uh, suffice it to say, the kingdom of heaven is the realm where God owns and controls and has dominion for those that are his. So the kingdom of heaven ultimately is salvation. We can sum it up as saying eternal life. Heaven. Um, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. We see it elsewhere in the scriptures as the kingdom of God. Matthew does something very, very helpful. Um, He's writing to a Jewish audience, and a, a good Jewish person won't even say the name of God, right? They don't want to break the commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. So the easiest way to not take his name in vain, if we're only talking about speech, is just never say the word God, never say Yahweh. So, Matthew, knowing that he's writing to good Jewish people, and he doesn't want to offend them, he says, we're going to call this, even though it's the kingdom of God, and you see that in Luke, you see that in Um, Mark, you see that all over the place. He says, we're going to call it the kingdom of heaven. They're identical. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But that's so helpful to us. Just, I mean, a side note there. Matthew is so helpful. What you say is important. It is the most important thing. Because you can say something very, very nicely. But if you're saying the wrong something, it doesn't matter how nicely you're saying it. So what you say matters most. But how you say it matters just as much. How you say it matters just as much, right? If I have the the tongue of, of angels, men of angels, I speak the things, the mysterious things of the Lord, but I do not have love. It profits nothing. So I have to have the truth, but I have to speak the truth with grace, with love. And Matthew does that so well here. And Jesus did that as he's speaking to this Jewish audience. So the kingdom of heaven, salvation, God's dominion, eternal life. It's like a treasure. Now, you would expect, Jesus, to say, a treasure that's on full display for all to see. But Jesus says it's like a treasure hidden in the field, hidden in a field. Why is it there? Why does anybody bury a treasure in a field? Well, we have our stocks, we have bonds, we have safe deposit boxes. Back then, they didn't have that. The closest thing to a bank that they had were the money changers in the temple, And you remember what Jesus declared them to be, a den of thieves. So most people would not want to place their money in the money changers' hands in the temple. So they would take their money, they would take their wealth. Usually they would just use it to buy more land. But if they had treasures, if they had resources, they would just bury it. They would take it and they would bury it so that nobody could steal it from them. Nobody could see it. Nobody could uh, deceptively, like the money changers would do, take it and steal it. Money would be tied up in land, yes, in possessions, but anything left over would be buried. This also particularly happened uh, during war, when war was imminent. You didn't want to be ransacked and pillaged, so you would just bury everything that you had somewhere where only you knew. Um, Some people would bury their money out of fear. Matthew 25, verse 18, the lazy steward who was reprimanded for burying what he had, not using it. Um, That's not what this uh, previous owner of this treasure is doing. This man finds this treasure in the field. We're not even told what the treasure is. It's hidden. It was apparently very costly. And we know that by the reaction, as we see this man's reaction, we know right away this treasure is immensely valuable. He stubs his toe on it, and he says, I need to sell everything I have to get this field. Now, there's a question here, and I want to tackle this question very quickly, but I do want to tackle it. The bottom line is the answer to this question honestly doesn't matter to the point of this parable. So that's why I want to go very quickly. But somebody's going to ask you this question, and especially since this is my favorite parable, and I've been asked this question before, and I have this question about this man, we have to answer it. Is what this man doing, is it ethical? He's stumbling upon somebody else's treasure, and he's stealing it. Is it ethical? The answer is, it is completely ethical. What he's doing, there's nothing unethical about what he's doing. I actually had two paragraphs of Jewish rabbinic teaching, Jewish law, that would detail that. Um, I fell asleep last night reading it, so I decided this is so boring, you just take my word for it, okay? Um, The bottom line is, if somebody placed their treasure in a field, and then they sold their land, and without even knowing, they, they forgot that treasure, they left it behind. If somebody else stumbles upon that treasure... The previous owner can't come back and say, whoa, 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 that's mine. It's now officially the other. This is finders keepers in Jewish law. This is such since it was prevalent in that society to bury your treasure. That's why there are these two. I mean, literally, you could Google this uh, Jewish rabbinical teaching on finding possessions buried somewhere. Uh, it's so prevalent. It was such an, a huge issue back then that there were laws abounding. Jesus knew that. So that's why he doesn't even make mention of it. What this man's doing is not unethical by any means. What he's doing is priceless. He sees a treasure and he says, I want it. And since I wouldn't be stealing this from anybody because they're gone already, what I can do is I can purchase this land from the new landowner and it can be mine. Now, that's the next interesting thing that this man does. If I'm this man, I see the treasure. I pick it up and I run with it. Why does he do this? Why does he bury this treasure? Um, this, this reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever done this. You go to a store, you find an article of clothing that you love. Maybe you don't have money or, or, or you want to uh, try something else out, but you like that shirt. So you take the shirt and you put it somewhere, you hide it in the rack, you know, and don't want anybody else to take this. Um, I do that often. My, my, my body size is very unproportional. <laughs> I'm an extra, extra large here, I'm an XL here, and I'm a small here. So no shirt ever fits me. So if I ever find one that does, no one's taking that shirt from me. I'm going to hide that shirt away. That's what this man does. What he does is actually very smart. Instead of picking up the treasure and having the, the landowner go, hey, what's that, and maybe take him to court and say, I really was the owner of that, and that was a treasure I buried, and now he's in court. Um, lying about you know, being the previous owner of that, that treasure, instead of him picking it up and maybe getting robbed on his way back, instead of picking it up and maybe losing some of it, he decides, you know what the safest place for this to be? As, as obviously the, the previous owner of this treasure sold his land and forgot about it, the, the best place, the safest place is to stay here. Then when I become the landowner, I'm going to be able to dig up all of this, figure out where the treasure is, take it to myself, and I get to keep it. So he's zealous for ownership. He doesn't want anyone else to find it. So the point of this parable, when he finds the treasure, he hides it again. And from his joy over it, he goes, he sells everything that he has, and he buys that field. The point of this parable is that a man found something so valuable that he sells everything he owns in order to get, to get it, to acquire it. He's so overjoyed, he's so overwhelmed by the value of his discovery that he's eager to surrender everything that he has in order to gain that one thing. That's the point. It's obvious. makes sense. Number two, pearl of great price. Verse 45. Again, so we're going to take these two together because Jesus is putting them together. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. The word merchant there is a Greek word, emperos. The reason why that's helpful to know is it's where we get our English word emporium. Um, what this man is doing, he's, he's a, a wholesaler. He's going around from city to city, finding the, the most uh, expensive trinkets at the least expensive price. He's buying them all, and then he's selling them at a greater price. He's a wholesaler going to buy the, the, the best pearls at the cheapest price to then sell them again and make a, a profit. And he finds, uh, he's seeking pearls. He's going to find a pearl. He's seeking pearls. Pearls, just in the day of Jesus, were diamonds. Think diamonds in our day. Uh, this is why Jesus gave the, the, the analogy of the pearls before swine. Um, I would say diamonds before swine, but diamonds uh, are to us what pearls were to them. Very, very costly. Very, very expensive. Very precious. So This man's seeking the fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, verse 46... He went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. So one pearl, he sells everything. He sells all of his other pearls to get this one pearl. Now, it's very interesting because as is true today, we'll be learning this in our Financial Peace University class, not tonight, but in a couple weeks. As is true today, it was true back then. If you want to be a good steward of your resources, the key word is diversification, right? You don't put all of your money into one thing. Don't put all your eggs into one basket diversify, put some into pearls, put some into land, put some into the ground, put money all over the place so that you're safe. So it's very significant that both of these men did exactly what the wisest, most savvy investors would call stupid. They took everything that they had and said, I'm going all in on one thing. Well, what if that one thing fails them? What if that one thing lets them down? But you know, these stories are not about investing money. They're not about investing money. They're showing us that everything this world deems worthwhile or important counts as loss compared to following Jesus. It's not about investing money. These aren't about money. This is about what your greatest treasure is and that Jesus is worth it. How do we see that? There are six Lessons. So we've got point number one, we've got the first parable, point number two, parable the uh, costly pearl. Um, point number three, just as we round this out, we are going to see six different lessons from both of these parables that show us the worth and the value of Jesus. They, they show us the nature of following Jesus. They show us what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And they reveal truths about the gospel. They reveal truths about our Savior. They reveal truths about ourselves. So, six main lessons. Number one, the worth of following Jesus is not superficially visible. The worth of following Jesus is not superficially visible. What I mean by that is that the treasure's hidden. The pearl had to be sought. Um, it's not instantly superficially visible. Otherwise, these would have been taken earlier. They're not obvious to the casual observer. Just like the the nature of parables themselves, you'd have to dive deeper, look harder. Truth is there, but you must seek it out. Consequently, the the way that these two men act shows logic that is upending values again. Um, Jesus is teaching a logic that most people scratch their head at and say, "You're, you're foolish, these two men look like utter fools. I mean, just place yourself in this story. Imagine being this guy's dad. So uh, what are you doing? You're selling everything you have. You have a family to provide. Are you sure? That's, I don't know if that's what you want to be doing. First couple conversations go like that. Next couple conversations, okay, you're being a fool. Don't do this. This is absolutely foolish. Next couple conversations, um, you know what? This is just ridiculous and I'm out. You can, you can enjoy the folly of your ways, but I'm done people who live this way selling everything that they have to have one thing alone as their treasure jesus christ look like utter fools they look like they're in a frenzied panic to have this treasure oh i gotta sell it all now i mean imagine the 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 seller of that costly pearl here i've got a pearl it's a big one it's price pricey And this man comes, and he has bags and bags full of pearls. And he's just dumping them out on the table. I'll give you everything I have for that one pearl. And the man's thinking one of two things, probably both. Either, yikes, what's so good about this pearl? I probably shouldn't sell this. Or he's thinking, what a fool. I'm getting all of these pearls, and all I have to do is sell this little cheap nothing pearl. Amazing deal. The value, the worth of following Jesus is not superficially visible. Non-believers simply cannot see the value. They can't see the logic. Wait, you're telling me to follow Jesus means this? I don't want to do that. I mean, I literally had somebody tell me as I was sharing the gospel with them and inviting them to church. Wait, so you're telling me to follow Jesus means that I have to go to church on Sunday mornings? Well, I don't want to give up football. (laughs) I said, well, there are a lot of churches that meet on Saturday night, but hey, let's talk about idolatry here. This is great. The world does not understand that what looks like foolishness is actually very, very wise. One commentator says it this way. The interesting thing is this. It is possible to lose your head, to look crazy, but to keep it at the same time. You lose your head in your joy and knowing God and you don't care if people think you're crazy. Yet you are probably at your sanest when you come to the place where you abandoned all else but you, your desire for God. Once you have truly experienced the worth of Jesus, your money, reputation, love for the world, fear of what people will say, and so on, all pale in insignificance. So the value's there, but it's not instantly seen. You've got to take another look. Number two second lesson that we can learn from these two parables. Not everyone begins following Jesus the same way. Not everyone begins following Jesus the same way. Now, obviously, I want to be careful here because everybody receives salvation. If you're truly saved the same way, everybody receives it. I want to expound on this point. Not everyone begins following the same way. There are obvious similarities in these two parables, but there are differences as well, and those differences are very interesting, and they're crucial to help us. The first man, in verse 44, just stumbles upon the treasure. He's not seeking it. Um, In my imagination, I, I see one of two scenarios. Either he's walking through this field, doesn't even know it's owned by somebody. He's walking through, maybe it's not even fenced in, and as he's walking on his way to go somewhere, he stubs his toe. And as he stubs his toe, ouch, he's jumping, he's hopping up and down, ouch. He turns around to look at what, what it was that, that tripped him up. He wants to probably curse at that thing, pick it up, and chuck it across the field. And as he looks, he sees it. Oh, it's shiny. Where's something here? And he starts digging, and he sees a treasure. The other way that I see this going is as he's walking through the field, he sees something shiny way in the distance and he kind of looks and it's just shimmering to him and he keeps walking and it just keeps getting brighter and bigger and then all of a sudden he sees just one single gold coin sticking up out of the earth. And as he starts to dig, he finds it. But the bottom line is this man is not looking for treasure. He's not searching. He's just walking along his normal daily routine. The second man verse 45, is seeking fine pearls. This is a big difference. And this is a crucial difference about how we begin our discipleship process with Jesus. There are many Christians that we even know of in the Bible that began their walk with the Lord the way that this man in verse 44 began. They weren't wanting it. They weren't seeking it. They weren't looking for it. Think of Saul turned to Paul in Acts chapter 9. He's definitely not seeking Jesus. He's wanting to murder Christians. But Jesus sought him. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she didn't go out to Jesus saying, hey, have you seen the Messiah anywhere? Because I really want to talk to him. She said, I want water. And Jesus says, I can give you everlasting water. It will spring up within you. You'll never thirst again. Man born blind in John 9, the apostle Matthew in Matthew 9, 9, countless others in the Bible, they're just walking along their daily life and God grips their heart. And they stumble upon the worth of Jesus as God grips their heart. But there are other people like this man in verse 45 who are seeking. We uh, saw one in Family Bible Hour this morning, the rich young ruler. He goes up to Jesus and he says, hey, how can I inherit eternal life? Now, we're careful, even as we were in Family Bible Hour, we're careful to say, okay, the Bible's clear. No one seeks after God. Romans 2. Very clear. No one seeks after God. But that doesn't mean that people can't be seeking to find satisfaction in something with religious nature. Um, we see people like this Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight. God's gripping this man's heart and he's saying, OK, I'm reading the scriptures. I'm looking for some form of satisfaction and joy. Can you help me understand this? And boom, he's saved. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, so on and so forth. You can go to so many people in the scriptures. So people come to Jesus in different ways. Some follow Jesus almost by accident. They just kind of stumble into it. Some have been seeking to follow somebody for a long time, and they have finally found the one that their soul is captivated by. But the reality is, whether you are looking for it or not, the kingdom, it's the kingdom that really does the finding. And once we've been found by the kingdom, we are willing to lose all for it. We're willing to lose all for it. Like the old hymn said, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. It wasn't me. No, I was found of Thee. So I sought the Lord. I chose God. Yeah, you did. But In the end, you'll find out it was God who chose you. You could never have run to Him if He hadn't been working in your heart. Number three, so we've seen um, following Jesus, uh, the worth of following Jesus is not superficially visible. Not everybody starts following Jesus the same way. God works in different ways. Number three, very quickly, you have to follow Jesus personally. You have to follow Jesus personally. This is uh, a bit obvious to us. There's only one person in each of these stories. But here's the point of that for, I think, Jesus' hearers. If you are part of ethnic Israel... And you are a good Jewish person. And back in Jesus' day, you would think, I get to waltz into the kingdom just by the fact that my ethnicity, I'm a son or daughter of Abraham, thats it. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I don't have to do anything. So for Jesus to say no, to appropriate the kingdom, you personally, individually need to do something. We've talked about this before a couple times as we've studied the book of John. Um, it's not about the church that you go to. It's not about your family's faith. It's not even that you've been baptized or that you've done certain things. It's that God's going to grip you individually, and you must appropriate that by faith individually. You don't get to waltz into heaven on the coattails of somebody else's faith. So what is it about? It's about love. It's about cherish. It's about treasure. Who do you cherish? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. You must personally love God and pursue Jesus Christ. If any man does not love Jesus, does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. It's about love. If any man does not love the Lord, you're accursed. Do you love Jesus? You must follow Jesus personally. Number four, following Jesus has a high cost. Following Jesus has a high cost. Jesus is not teaching here that you have to pay to go to heaven or that you have to do something to earn God's favor. Scriptures are abundantly clear that you can't pay, you can't buy your way in. Let me give you a couple. Matthew 19:24, Jesus says it's actually harder for a rich man to go to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and that's impossible. So he's saying it's impossible for a rich man, for somebody who is trusting their riches to get to heaven. can't happen. Money can't get you there. Mark chapter 10, verse 24, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Psalm 49, verses 6 through 8. Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him because the redemption of his soul is costly. So you can't pay money to get your soul to go to heaven. You can't do good things to get your soul to go to heaven. If you could, Jesus wouldn't have to have died. But Jesus died, and he he proclaimed on the cross, "It is finished. It's paid in full. The debt has been paid, so that you can freely enter. You can freely enter. You have to be poor in spirit. It's not about the money that you have or the goodness that you have." Uh, Brian preached on that with Luke 18. You have to be bankrupt, not like the Pharisees says, "I praise God. I'm not like those people." You have to say, "I be merciful to me, the sinner. I've got nothing to offer you, God. You don't come by money." Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Freely you have received, so therefore freely give. You come by Jesus making the payment on the cross. It is finished. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. By one offering, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Oh, I love that verse. By one offering. By Jesus dying on the cross, he's paid it all. He did the work. So you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't. Scriptures are replete. You cannot earn your way to heaven. And genuine faith never fails to appreciate the true cost of your salvation, that Jesus paid it all. But to say that eternal life can be freely received by faith alone is not to suggest that there isn't a genuine cost. Those two are not opposed. Grace is free by faith alone, but it will cost you. It will cost you. What does it cost you? Charles Spurgeon, in preaching a a sermon on this passage, he said, what do we sell? What is the cost to us? Just like the the man who found the treasure in in the field, sold all that he had, the the costly pearl, he sold everything that he had. What's the cost to us? He gave three examples. Number one, our old prejudices and thinking. Our old prejudice, we need to sell that. We think we're gods, we think we're good enough. We think God's kind of like us. This is what all the cults do. They just say that God's like us and we're like God. They bridge that gap so that we can do works to get to God. So God's really kind of like us. We're good enough to get to him. Just a couple works of righteousness and we'll get there. That's the second thing Charles Ferdinand said. We need to sell our self-righteousness. We need to sell our self-righteousness. There is no one good, no not one. We cannot get to God by our good deserving of heaven. It's impossible. And number three, we need to sell our sinful pleasures and practices. We need to turn from sin. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That's true salvation. You may have accomplishments galore. You may have religious accomplishments. You may be good. You may be smart. People might even like you. You might be brimming with excellence. But you can't buy grace with any of that. You can't buy grace. Isaiah 55. come buy from me with money that you don't have oh you have to purchase salvation but you purchase salvation with nothing of your own no money that you have grace is free but it's not cheap so how do we do it what's the transaction the deal is this all of christ for nothing of you you have to have nothing don't cheapen grace by saying oh i can provide something Um, Money, uh, good works, uh, my righteousness, my good deeds. I can do something to earn grace. Don't cheapen grace that way. Grace is amazing. So come and buy unsearchable riches of grace with your poverty of spirit. That's all Jesus accepts. So here's the key from these parables. There's a high cost to following Jesus. And here's the cost. It's not about buying the kingdom. You can't get into the kingdom by buying it. You get in the kingdom by wanting it more than anything in this world. That's the cost. By wanting the kingdom, by wanting Jesus more than anything in this world. You have to want it more than anything else. You can't have the other things and have the kingdom too. Jesus says this. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in anything. You have to serve one or the other. Either you will love the one and be uh, hating the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both. So to follow Jesus, to begin following Jesus, you have to want him more than anything. So sacrifice is there. There is a a true high cost, but it's a happy sacrifice. It's a joyful sacrifice. You count the cost, Jesus says several times in the Gospels. You count the cost. Are you sure you want to follow me because you have to give up things? But it turns out to be a happy cost. It's a happy cost. It's amazing to me what people will sacrifice to do something that they deem worthy amazing to me. One of the most astounding things to me is people who climb Mount Everest. On average, 14 people die for every 100 who make it to the top. One in four people who actually make it to the top will die on their way down. And it costs anywhere, typically on average, from 60 to $120,000 to make a summit attempt. And it takes 8 to 12 years of your life. You have to go there, acclimate, do a bunch of climbing. You have to get ready. And people gladly do that. They pay the money, they pay the time, and many of them pay with their own lives. And when they die, you hear this expression a lot. Well, he died doing what he loved, what he loves, what he wants to do. Martin Luther wrote a hymn. We sing it often here, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And there's a stanza where he says, let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. Let it all go. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Now, when I sing that, I've always had this mentality of, it's okay if I die. Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they can kill, it's fine. I will live forever with Jesus in heaven. And I've just kind of thought more of a, almost like a defiantness in singing that. I am not afraid to die. I'm I'm not afraid of what will come. I've got Jesus. But as I was thinking about this sermon, I realized there's another way to see that. Let it all go. Let everything that I value, even my body, even what I have, let it all go because only his kingdom endures forever. Everything else fades. The money that you have, the pleasures that you enjoy, they all fade. His kingdom alone is forever. So give up everything. It's a cost, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Number five, following Jesus is the source of true joy. It's the only source of true joy. Following Jesus is the only source of true joy. Two of my favorite words in the entire scriptures, verse 44, from joy. He did not follow Christ begrudgingly. Oh man, i got to give all this up. I've spent my entire life pursuing all this stuff and now you're telling me I have to... That's the rich young ruler, right? Goes away grieved because he's not giving it up. This man is happy, ecstatic to part with everything that he owns. Why? Because of joy. Because he knows that the God who rules on his behalf The omnipotent, almighty creator of everything in this world works to bring you satisfaction and joy. He loves to do that. So I want to be on that team. I want to be with him where he's working to give me joy. That's what Jesus says, right? John 15, verse 11. I'm speaking these things so that your joy may be full. I want you to be as joyful as possible. This is why Augustine said uh, he had written, uh, written above his bed. He had Psalm 32 written above his bed, and then he had these words. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. If I were to ask you why you have believed in Christ, why have you become Christians? Every man will truly answer for the sake of happiness. I have followed Jesus because it is a joyful thing. I ultimately want to be the happiest that I can be in life. And following Jesus provides that. True joy. This is a fight for joy. This is a fight for satisfaction. I want to love Jesus more than anything in this world, because I want to be more satisfied in him than in anything that this world has to offer. John Gerstner says it this way. When people are born again, they come running irresistibly because they would not have it any other way. You can put all kinds of obstacles in their path, but they're men of violence. That's a phrase in the scriptures that says you're going to count the cost and you're going to pursue no matter what it takes. It doesn't mean war, or things like that. You're going to take it by force. They're going to take the kingdom by force. He continues, when they find this pearl, they're going to sell everything that they have and they're going to get it. That hidden treasure is going to be theirs. They're going to thump on that door until it's open. They're going to have because they hunger and they thirst after righteousness. They're chasing it down. So is there a desire in you to find true joy and true satisfaction? If there is, it can only be found in Jesus. You can try all the other ways. And look at the alternative to this parable. A man walks through the field, stubs his toe, uh, unearths the treasure, picks it up and says, yeah, it's too much work, and buries it. I don't want to, you know, I, forget this. I don't want this anymore. This is what happens every single day. People give up pure joy in following Jesus to say, I want the filth. I want the sin. I know it only satisfies for a season, and in the end it brings forth death. But I, I still want that. That's all I want. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. You know this quote. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. You say, well, I, I just love sin. I love, and I, I wish I didn't love sin so much. I just need weaker desires. I need, I, I need my desires softened. And No, it's not that your desires are too strong. They're too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so this man picks up the treasure and he goes, I'm I'm pleased with all the stuff I have. I don't really need any more. I'm okay. And in the end it brings death. From joy. You know what the character of one who has been made alive by God as you're following Jesus looks like? It looks like Psalm 84.10. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I want to be with him. Why? Because he brings me the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction. I want to be with him. That verse has special meaning to us. It's one of the verses, kind of theme verse for our son. uh, Tyler, Ryan. Tyler means servant. Ryan means king. The idea of, you know what? To be a servant in the house of the king is the best by far. It's the best by far. And I pray that Tyler would come to a place where he would understand there is nothing in this life better than following Jesus. There's nothing. That's point number six. Following Jesus is incomparable in value. Following Jesus is incomparable in value. The kingdom of heaven, following Jesus, salvation, eternal life, is so valuable. That losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. Lose everything on earth and you get Jesus and you've hit the jackpot. It's a happy trade-off. Why? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. The treasure that you have in heaven is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, eternal, reserved in heaven for you. Thomas Guthrie writes in the blood of Christ to wash out sin's darkest stains in the grace of God to purify the foulest heart in peace to calm life's roughest storms in hopes to cheer guilt's darkest hour in a courage that defies death and descends calmly into the tomb in that which makes the poorest rich and without which the richest are poor indeed. The gospel alone has treasure greater far than East or west unfold, and its rewards more precious are than all of the stores of gold in this world. The Bible is not against money; it's not against wealth. The Bible is against treating money or wealth or anything, for that matter, as our treasure above Jesus. That's what the Bible is against. Remember when Zacchaeus gave away half of his things to the poor? He repays fourfold what he had defrauded of others. He's not showing that money is bad. He's not saying, everybody, look, money's awful. I'm getting rid of it. What he's showing is that Jesus is infinitely better. I can hold my money loosely because I have Jesus. When you see that knowing Jesus and following Jesus are infinitely precious, then you will see lesser treasure for what it truly is. You'll see the things of this world as lesser treasures. Matthew six nineteen. we started with this last week. Um, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do we do that? How are we to do that? Well, we talked a little bit about it last week, but here's what I would say this week. It's easier to store up for yourself treasure in heaven, to follow Jesus alone as your treasure. It's easier to do that when you can see the moths and you can see the oxidation in the sunlight of God's glory, of Jesus' glory. When you see those things clearly for what they are, everything will fade away. Um, Look Into the fullness of his grace and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. The merchant did not sell all of his inventory because he found one more pearl. Oh, that will add to my collection. He sold all of his inventory because he found the be-all, end-all of every pearl that's ever existed. When Christ becomes your be-all, end-all, this sort of trade-off makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. The taste of God's goodness will ruin your taste for worldly delicacies. So press into him and you'll be glad to give everything away. There's nothing comparable to following Jesus. I think Paul paraphrases this parable in Philippians chapter 3 when he says in verses 7 and 8 that he counts everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So, Do you know him that way? Is he everything to you? Is he your greatest treasure? I think the only way that you can come to a place where you see the worth and the value of Jesus. uh, Loving him, right? It's only because he first loved us. Repenting from sin and turning to him. It's only because of the kindness of God that leads us there. So I think it would be good to end by saying that Jesus asks us, he commands us to deny ourselves. He commands us to follow him. There's blessing and there's benefit. There's high cost as well. But Jesus never asks us to do anything that he himself hasn't already done. Think of what Jesus did. We sang about it. In bringing many sons to glory for the joy that was set before him, he left heaven, he gave up the glory and the worship that he had in heaven, and he willingly stepped into this world To be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be spit on, to be murdered. Why? Because there was a treasure he was chasing. There was a treasure he was chasing. And guess who that treasure is? It's his bride. It's you and me. He willingly, gladly, for joy, gave up all of the riches that he had to purchase you. And all he's asking is you to do the same. Would you gladly, willingly give up all that you have to be with him? He already made the transaction. He already made the purchase. Now will you leave everything and follow him? Once you see the beauty of Jesus, everything else is lost. So as we prepare to partake of communion together, I'm going to ask the men to come. We're going to sing a song just to ready our hearts. And we're going to pass out the elements while we are singing. Just hold those elements These elements are to remind us of the purchase price of redemption. The body of Jesus, sinless, the blood of Jesus, pure, and yet his body, he who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. Our only response, it's not, well, let me do something to pay it off. Let me do something to prove. Let me do our only response. Thank you, Jesus. God, I pray now as we prepare our hearts and ready our minds to partake of communion, that we would simply say, Jesus, thank you. And that we would run after the precious value of Jesus. God, make our church a church that values him far beyond anything this world has to offer. So God, I pray even now as the men come to take these elements and distribute them to the church that we would be contemplating the majesty of the cross, the glory revealed in the Son of God slain, and the new life that we've been given in a resurrected Savior. God bless us now as we meditate on the cross. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.